You have probably seen him in a San Francisco courtroom or right here on CBS 5. A, a very familiar face in the legal world, a former candidate for mayor, by the way, and a staunch advocate for pension reform, and the only elected public defender in the state of California. Here to chat with us, all things legal, is Jeff Hidachi. How are you? Hey. One day after the sudden death of San Francisco public defender Jeff Adachi, ABC7's I-Team has, I has obtained the police report providing some answers about what happened. The autopsy concluded the cause of death is acute mixed drug toxicity with cocaine and ethanol, with hypertensive atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as a contributing there factor. Are some new questions being raised this evening, not about Jeff Adachi's death itself, but about who leaked the details of the investigation. That this was apparently an unauthorized leak. Someone did something wrong and that it could conceivably be a criminal act depending on the circumstances of that leak. I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, the Jeff Adachi leak case. The February 22nd death of San Francisco's powerful public defender continues to reverberate. After a freelance journalist sold a leaked police report on Adachi's death to television stations, the cops raided his home and seized his computers, trying to find out who his source was. That's raised big questions about the freedom of the press. To be clear, the Chronicle also obtained a police report in the death of Jeff Adachi, but we did not pay for it. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and to do so, we're going to first have Evan Cernofsky on. He's a police reporter at the Chronicle that's been covering this case for us. We're going to talk about how we got here and where we go from here. After that... Audrey Cooper, my co-host on the program, as well as the editor-in-chief of The Chronicle, is going to be in. We're going to talk about the impact of this case on journalists' ability to gather the news and hold the government accountable. And we'll also get into the ethics of how we do our jobs. First up, Evan Cernofsky. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Evan is a reporter at The Chronicle who covers uh, San Francisco law enforcement, including the police department. And you've been covering this case of Jeff Adachi's death and the aftermath and the leak of a police report. Can you take us back to how this all started? February 22nd, correct? That's right. Uh, February 22nd was a pretty shocking day for us in the media and San Francisco in general. Uh, Jeff Adachi, the famed public defender, died it turned out to be from a heart attack mixed with uh, his use of cocaine and alcohol. And initially, we ran a story. We didn't know what had happened. We knew that he died. We had it up, and immediately there was just an outpouring of support from friends, family members, city officials after learning that this really lion in the criminal justice world here in San Francisco had passed away. Yeah, Jeff Adachi wasn't your usual public defender. Um, I know that you and I, correct, uh, over the years, we've probably talked to him each hundreds and hundreds of times. Sure. Um, how was he different from most public defenders? Well, the traditional role of a public defender is to um, represent indigent clients in the courtroom. But Jeff Adachi took that role way outside of that. He was a, you know, a watchdog against police misconduct. Uh, he fought for police reform. He took issues to the state level and the national level, and he was uh, on, on the bullhorn at rallies defending really any sort of major cause for um, you know criminal justice reform. And he's been at odds over and over with the police department in San Francisco, correct? Oh, 100 uh, percent. It seems like almost on a monthly basis he'd be having a press conference exposing some kind of 
you know, questionable use of force issue, or he'd be on the steps of City Hall um, castigating some kind of issue um, that came up with the police department, not to mention filing motions going after the district attorney's office and going after um, police in general and law enforcement for a wide range of behaviors. And that put a lot of politics into this case immediately. Tell us about what you were doing the day after he died, you and other reporters in the Bay Area. So like with any public official, Ed Lee, the mayor of San Francisco, had died a few months before. We wanted to find out the information. I mean, Jeff Adachi was a public official, and we were interested in knowing what the circumstances were surrounding his death. Uh, We soon learned that he had died in a mysterious apartment on Telegraph Hill. He was with a woman having dinner who was not his wife, and there's sort of some questionable things about how he died that as they got released in the media prompted a lot of people to wonder whether Jeff Adachi was being smeared by his enemies in the police department. So the next thing that happens is a police report emerges. And was this police report public and how did it get out there? The, the police report was not public. It was about a two-page description of the location where Adachi had collapsed, a little bit of a narrative about how this woman had called 911 from his cell phone to get paramedics over there, a description of how he had ultimately been taken to the hospital and died, and then photographs from inside the apartment, almost two dozen photographs of various items inside the apartment that frankly didn't paint a very positive portrayal of Adachi. So how does the media get this report? So the media is leaked this report from inside the police department. The report is only available to the San Francisco Police Department. It's a confidential report, so there's no other way for it to get out to the media. But it's on an internal, internal system there where officers could have pulled it up. That's right. It's on an internal system that, to my understanding, was available to the 2,000 police officers who are in the department. So who ends up with the report and who's providing it? So at least three television stations ran details in the report that it was later determined was given to them by this stringer named Brian Carmody. He's a man who has worked in the San Francisco Bay Area for nearly 30 years going around and shooting video. He's this freelance videographer. He collects news stories. He collects video footage. He collects interviews at scenes of crimes and fires and car wrecks. And then he takes it to television newsrooms who pay him a usual fee for collecting the information. Now, the Chronicle also obtained a copy of this report. We did not get it from Brian Carmody, and we did not pay for it. And can you say where we got it? I cannot. Why not? Because the Chronicle got it from a confidential source, and we do not release or name our confidential sources. I gotcha. So um, the next thing that happens with Mr. Carmody that really makes this a big story is what? On Friday at about 8.30 in the morning, police arrived at his home in the outer Richmond and started banging on the metal gate of his house, trying to break in in order to execute a search warrant. What were they after? They were after information that could lead them to figure out who had leaked Carmody 
the police report. The police department wouldn't elaborate on the details of their investigation, but I have their statement that they released on Friday. They said, today's actions are one step in the process of investigating a potential case of obstruction of justice, along with the illegal distribution of a confidential police report. So let me get this straight. The police are investigating themselves, and they go out there and and, uh, are going to break down a private citizen's door to find out who in their own department leaked the report. That's right. So they went in there about 8.30. They handcuffed Mr. Carmody for around six hours. They searched his entire residence. They took computers. They took cell phones. They took SIM cards. They took tablets. They ultimately discovered that he had an office in the Western Edition. So they went back to the Superior Court. They got another search warrant signed by another judge. And then they went to that location and seized even more items. And this whole issue now has raised this bigger question about California's shield law. So the trouble here is that in order to, as you said, figure out who in their department had leaked this report, they've now gone to a journalist and they have seized all of his items to get evidence in their own investigation. And California's shield law is very broad and has and pr- is supposed to protect journalists from being compelled to identify and release the names of their sources. It's it's specifically designed to do just that. That's right. And it can it can get a little murky in today's media landscape where you have bloggers and you have people on social media who are sort of defining themselves as journalists. But freelancers in the past, it's applied to. And Carmody has worked in the San Francisco Bay Area doing what he's done for some 30 years almost. He has a city-issued press pass from the San Francisco Police Department. And the very nature of what he was doing, getting the police report and bringing it to television stations, was in and of itself an act of journalism, which is particularly particularly troubling for many First Amendment uh, groups who see this as a blatant violation of the shield law. And California law specifically for the shield law talks about search warrants applying, correct? That's right. Okay. So what has been the reaction afterward? How have the police justified this? And what has been the reaction of both First Amendment and journalism advocates and elected officials in San Francisco. So this story has exploded on the national level. Uh, First Amendment advocates and advocates for journalists like the Society of Professional Journalists have come out and condemned the raid. There's been stories obviously in our paper um, and around the Bay Area, but also all the way in the East Coast publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times. But locally, it's been slower to develop because a lot of the public officials here called on the police to aggressively investigate the leak. And that's because they saw the smearing, as they saw it, of, of Jeff Adachi, someone who they saw as a, a key reform figure in San Francisco. That's right. And then the other thing that's developed is um, the police department has been asked repeatedly uh, for details about what happened. They've come out and said that they obtained two search warrants, one for his home and later the one for his office signed by two different judges. And at San Francisco's weekly police commission meeting, uh, Chief Bill Scott said uh, the department went through the legal process, the appropriate process for uh, obtaining these um, search warrants, although he wouldn't really discuss the particulars of it 
because those warrants were filed under seal. So we don't know what police wrote in their probable cause statements and how much they disclosed whether or not Brian Carmody was a journalist. So the police department is sticking by the raid. Right. As this as this story is blown up on a national level over First Amendment issues and the searching of a journalist's home and the shield law and all that, the police department is still talking about the initial investigation that they were going after. Chief Scott said, we need to do our job to make sure these reports are not released. This is a criminal investigation. We need to get to the bottom of that. He's not really addressing the larger issue that so many people are now looking at San Francisco about, which is this possible blatant violation of a person's constitutional rights. All right, Evan Cernofsky, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Evan Cernofsky, our lead police reporter in San Francisco. When we come back, we're going to be joined by my co-host, And the editor-in-chief of the paper, Audrey Cooper, we're going to dig deep into this issue of freedom of the press that has been raised in this case, talk about the impact on our ability to gather the news right after this. Audrey Cooper, our editor-in-chief, is now joining us. She wrote an op-ed on the Adachi case where she took on some of the issues for the media that have come up. And, of course, the police raid on on a stringer's home. I'm really glad we're talking about this issue. I, I, I kind of strong-armed you into coming down to the podcast studio to talk about this because I've received so many emails from people who are, you know, besides the details of this case, there's so much curiosity and confusion, I think, about how the media does our – how we do our jobs, why we want this information, how these things get reported, what level of thought goes into it. So I think there's if, – if there could be a webcam outside your office and mine, <laughs> people would just see the – the path back and forth that you be as we talk about these issues, not just on these big cases, but literally almost on every single story that that has any inkling of um, strangeness to it at all. You've been big on radical transparency in our jobs. That's my new thing. Uh, I hope people realize how much time we spend talking about these issues. We enjoy it because, you know, it's it's part of the job. It's it's the responsibility that I think for us is very satisfying, but literally sometimes hours in a day, we talk about whether we can report something and how to do it. And whether we should do it too. I mean, that's what I think, you know, the the emails I got this morning, um, I think I got one that was, I really liked your editorial, but did you ever think of this? Everything else has been more than anything I've ever written, overwhelmingly positive, because I think there's a lot of concern that the police seem to have made a serious overreach in this in this case by raiding a journalist's house. But that issue has been conflated with what did the media organizations that paid him for that police report, what did they do with it? And was that ethical journalism? And I just think we need to separate these two issues. Uh, on one hand, you know, as I said in the piece, I I say this all the time, but I don't like us covering other media. I think people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Um, We've had some missteps that I've had to come clean about um, in the history of my time as editor. And and that stuff happens when you publish the equivalent of a paperback novel every day. You're not going to get everything 100% of the time. We do it, I'd say, 99.99% of the time, and we try to be transparent about when we think in retrospect we didn't. In this case, however, I I did say I I think 
how some people used this information in the media was kind of sleazy, to be honest with you. And and specifically what I'm referring to is that police report that Brian Carmody got and then sold to three television stations, they put on air some of the photos that were in that police report. And the photos didn't really tell you anything except he was he died in this apartment where there was an unmade bed and there were empty liquor bottles. And the innuendo is very clear, but we d- we shouldn't traffic in innuendo. That's to my mind, not responsible journalism. And I, and I think you would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it was just the suggestion of a bed, um, which uh, every apartment has. Um, and we were looking at the same report. So, you know, let's, let's kind of dig into this, um, you know, from the beginning. This was a case where we talked a lot from the very beginning about ethics. When, when Jeff Adachi died, immediately reporters, as they do, were trying to dig in. Our reporters here were trying to dig into what happened. Um, it was shocking. I mean, Jeff Adachi was relatively young. He was seemed to be in pretty good health. So when somebody dies that suddenly, I, I was actually out of town at the time at a friend's house. But, you know, I got the text from a source who, and about the same time everybody else did. And I, I freaked out. I mean, you assume the worst as a journalist. Let's be honest. We're, we're a little glass half empty kind of people. And your we news instinct, yeah. you have to be, your, your gut kicks in and said, oh my God, what happened? So that's the backdrop of how you go into covering a story like this. Yeah. The one thing we cannot do is, is not ask the questions. That's the one thing that we can't do. Our readers expect us to look into it. And then we have a responsibility when we report it to tell you what's newsworthy. And we probably leave out in any given story, it could be 50% of what we find out. It could be all of what we find out. Right. That's right. And and in this case, when you're dealing with the public defender who had been so uh, vilified, really, by um, some prosecutors and some members of the police department and some people who generally didn't like him taking on uh, the defense of accused criminals, you have to tiptoe, I think, around this case. But you also, as you said, you have to ask the questions because there's always that what if, you know, you, you just don't know. And that's part of our jobs is to make sure we run down all of the possibilities so that there are no conspiracy theories out there. So we can tell you we know that didn't happen because we investigated it. Yeah, I mean, just to give readers a little bit of a, a sense of it, and, and I think maybe they know you are the editor-in-chief. You are my boss. You run the show. <laughs> I, I, run the, the, uh, I run the news division uh, in the Bay Area, and so I'm running the story. And um, in a story like this, we might look at 10 or 20 different threads. I mean, we, there's not a road that we're going to choose to not go down, so we might listen to the, the police radio transmission. We might look at the logs. We might listen to the 911 calls. We're trying to get the police report. We're going to talk to the police, the prosecutors. We're going to try to talk to people in Adachi's office. We're going to go down all these roads because so, we don't know what we're going to find. Explain to everybody, though, why don't we just wait for the cops to tell us what happened? Because I think that's a thread that I've heard even from some city supervisors of, well, it's it's illegal for you to report on anything until the police officially release it, which just set my hair on fire for like, what was it, 24 hours? I was ranting about it. Why don't we just wait for the official report? I think what we have discovered, and I think more and more, is that we need to assert our independence when we're looking into a story. So we need to use our own decision making um, and, and report it independently 
um, so that if there's a story there and someone doesn't want us to know about it, we'll find it. And uh, like I said, a lot of times there, there may be no story or so, no larger story. But we don't know and we, we have decided that we can't trust all of the people that may have an interest in the case. We need to make independent decisions. And, um, and we, uh, history has shown that, that in a lot of cases we end up finding something um, that was either being hidden or in, in many cases we'll find some side issue. We'll find some issue of accountability. So let's say someone has died, um, a public figure. Maybe there's nothing unusual about the way they died. But sometimes we might find out that the response, there was something wrong. Maybe the 911 call was slow. Uh, maybe there was a communication radio problem. It could be anything. And so we just go down all these paths. I mean, let's take it away from something as, as emotionally charged as the death of the public defender. All of your BART coverage has been like that. If we had waited for the institution of BART or BART police to officially release things, we wouldn't know Ninety percent of what we now know is wrong with the BART stations and the BART system and the BART administration. And now those things presumably are mostly on their way to getting fixed because of that checks and balances of the the free estate, the the fourth estate, the free press. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's keep digging into this. Um, the the person in this case, Brian Carmody, uh, was a stringer. And how do we use uh, stringers of the paper? When do we pay for things? Uh, when do we pay for photos and video? Do we? Yeah. So a stringer is also another word for a freelancer, uh, which is another name for an independent journalist. It basically means you um, you you do news gathering, but you don't necessarily get a steady paycheck from an institution like you and I get a steady paycheck from the Chronicle. Brian Carmody had a press pass from the San Francisco Police Department. So there was at least one official recognition that he made at least part of his living this way. Uh, And as you know, uh, every year we have to go through renewing our press passes. It's hard to get a press pass from SFPD. I don't have one. Do you have one? I do. You do? Oh, well, you're much (laughs) You're more of a journalist than I am, Damien. But they're they're hard to get. I mean, they're hard to get for us. So I, I presume they're even harder to get for people who aren't tethered to an official news outlet. We use freelancers in a much different way, I think, than television stations do, which is most of our freelance budget goes to um, Datebook and the features section. So we might ask somebody to um, cover a movie that maybe Mick LaSalle, our, our critic, can't get to. Or our book reviews, those are all freelance. So we usually go out and go with trusted writers we know who write for a variety of publications and they write something specific for us. That's not how Brian Carmody necessarily made his job. It, it, he, he was a videographer, primarily, and a photographer, and he went out maybe to a car crash, or he was one of those night hustlers that goes out when you know there aren't a lot of journalists on the street, maybe, and he collects video and sells that to television stations. And that seems to be the majority of how he made his living. Um, that's how we use stringers versus a television station. But, you know, we've talked a lot about whether we would pay for information. And how, where do you come down on this? Well, typically we, we almost can never pay for information in the sense of, the, of paying a witness or a newsmaker uh, for something. That is uh, typically the province of a TMZ or a National Enquirer. The reason is that it could change their story. Uh, and it could have a bearing on the, in the trustworthiness of the information and the fairness. 
And so it makes it so we can't pay, for example, um, you know, someone who's a party, you know, to a criminal case um, or, you know, the person's ex-husband or whatever, ex-wife. Um, so and, and we've lost out on stories sometimes oh. like that, too. It happens quite frequently. Either somebody else will pay them for All an the interview or the thing that I find slightly uh, almost more insidious in a way is big national TV outlets. Let's say, you know, pick your nighttime television show or your daytime television show that airs across America. They'll typically fly those people into New York, give them basically a free trip to New York. And that's very enticing for people. So they may not write them a check, but they give them a lot of perks to get them to go do those shows as opposed to talking to the Chronicle. Yeah, I was a reporter during the uh, recovery of J.C. Dugard, the kidnap victim who was um, found outside Antioch finally. And um, I was reporting the story. And in the days after she was recovered, I was going around and interviewing people and more and more people started to sort of get under contract uh, with tabloids. And so they would say, I can't talk to you anymore. I've signed. And we couldn't do it because what we're looking for is unbiased testimony from them. We don't want that. Not only do we not them, want them taking a side, um, I don't even want them to think that um, I need to provide juicier information um, to justify the pay. So even that would be too much. Now, on the other hand, if uh, someone had uh, been at the scene of a fire um, and had taken an incredible photo and they asked for a fee similar to what we pay a freelance photographer, that's something that, I, that we consider and yeah, we talk about. And, and we did in, a, in another recent case. Um, you came rushing into my office as I was rushing out and I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time. <laughs> and you said, no, no, wait, you have to see this. And it was the video that somebody took in San Francisco of the altercation between Larry Bear and his wife that has now led to a lot of problems for the Giants. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so we were contacted by a man who had captured a short video um, of Larry Bear and his wife and, um, and, and the incident that I think people have, have seen now. And um, he told us what happened, and that was on the record. And he said, I have a video of it. And uh, he said, you know, um, would you like it? And we said, um, yes, we'd like to take a look at it. Um, but before he sent it to us, he, ha he said that um, he wanted to be paid for it. Um, and so that's what started our discussion. And the discussion was around whether we could do that, um, whether it could change the reporting. And uh, what we discussed uh, at the time was, was paying him a uh, fee similar to what we would pay a freelance videographer. Um, and but before we could um, before we could come to resolution, which is cheap too. Let's be honest. I'm <laughs> yeah, I cheap. It was, with a couple, it. It was, it was maybe two hundred dollars. I think I said. Um, before we come to resolution, he had sold it for more uh, to TMZ. Substantially more, I would substantially guess. Substantially more, and um, and so he, he was not offering it to us anymore. Um, we went with the story without the video. Um, I think we beat TMZ to the to the punch there. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it, it's a discussion. But um, and the issues in that case is we have to make sure that it's not doctored. For one mm -hmm. thing, yeah. we have to make sure that we try to reach out to Larry Bear and say, is this what happened? Was there something could there have been something before this that would alter, you know, this clip? Could something afterwards happened? And in this case, 
the audio and the visuals of that video just seemed so clear cut that there was almost nothing that could have happened before or after it to make it so that it would have been a misleading thing to show to the public. Not only that, but as we were reporting that story and before we went to print, we were already on the phone with Larry Bear, uh, reporter Evan Sarnofsky, who was on the show earlier, um, was out talking to other witnesses who confirmed uh, what was shown. So there's a lot of stuff going on that, um, that is in the confirmation uh, that happens immediately. Um, and we, that's what we try to do with everything. And how is that different in your mind, this incident with Larry Bear and the altercation with his wife? Uh, how is that different than the Jeff Adachi thing and reporting personal stuff that was being alleged about him? Well, you know, in the, the, the discussion in the Jeff Adachi case is always going to be around uh, what is newsworthy. Um, you know, if Larry Bear uh, is out in a public place and uh, has an altercation with his wife that is then being investigated by the police, um, then for us that is a newsworthy story. Um, less clear is what happens to Jeff Adachi as he's um, uh, that night that he died. And what, what is newsworthy about that? And, um, you know, we had our eyes open for things that might have been uh, newsworthy and, and ultimately um, reported some of uh, the news that came out in the coroners, the official death report in San Francisco, because we thought that the death of one of the most influential people in the city uh, was newsworthy. And, and I think people deserve to know uh, some of the basic facts there. And he died with alcohol and cocaine in his system and also likely from already a, a weak heart. Exactly. So there's a, a lot of things that went into that. You know, the there had been I don't think anybody was surprised who has worked in the city for for a long time since those rumors had abounded. But, you know, a lot of times I know I think, you know, is this something that we need to report? Did it affect his job? Um, was he ever doing things inappropriately with staff members or with um, clients or anything like that? And there is no indication, at least none that we could ever prove that that indicated that. So you're in this position where do you just report these rumors that you can't prove? No, that's libelous for one thing. And also, what's the public good in that? And it just I, I know it drives people nuts that there are some things that we don't know. But there are a lot of times where I say we just don't need to put that on the front page. It's beneath us. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's you know, there's there are sort of ethical uh, pitfalls Um but on the other hand, it's it's one thing that makes our job um, a little more interesting and 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 fun to do is that you're sort of holding holding that line and um, and you know where the line is. Um. Yeah, most it, most of the time, it's it's very easy to tell. I mean, I think this case, you know, to circle back to Brian Carmody, it's exposed a lot of uh, what people don't know about how we do our jobs, and it's exposed a lot of I think. Um, People need to know that there is a difference between liking how a television station uses information and then thinking that it's okay to bust down reporters' doors at home to uncover sources. To me, those are two completely different issues, and the more that people try to conflate them, uh, the less we're having a serious discussion about the future of media in this country. I mean, you know this, Damien, because I've been ranting about it in, in news meetings, I feel like, for the last four days, but 
you know, this this case really worries me as an editor who, you know, I feel responsible for all the reporters that we put on the front lines whose job it is to go out and get sensitive and confidential information. And, you know, this raid to me, what it did was put all of their lives and their families' lives in jeopardy. And I, I don't think I'm overstating it at all. California law, federal law, both protects journalists' right to be independent, to not be an arm of the government, to not be an investigative force of the government. And when the police department, you know, tried to bash down Brian Carmody's house, to me, it just represents this overreach by police and a real lack of understanding of the issues at stake here. If we can't investigate things and if we can't keep some materials confidential, that has the most alarming consequences for our democracy because it basically means that we would become um, more or less mouthpieces of the government. I mean, that's what we're talking about. If we can't do anything that's independent of the government, if we can't do anything until they give us permission to, and if they can bash down our doors and in intimidation to keep us away from things, that's we're talking about. A, we're talking about a police state when it comes to information. And and I think when you say it like that to people, it really hits home. There. I would say maybe, yeah, you tweeted this, that all of us would be in jail if that were illegal. But we don't do a good enough job of explaining that to people. I also think, you know, the the idea that to me it's laughable that the police felt that they needed to to break into this guy's house with with a with a search warrant, sure, but the fact that they had to bring a sledgehammer to his front door in order to get information to root out a leak in their own department just is is incredible to me. I, I just I just think this whole thing was a pretense and, and you know, this wasn't the Pentagon papers. This is this is something that would have outed itself anyway. If this raid hadn't happened, the story would be a memory for a lot of us in six months. And so sort of the the minorness of it in a way is what's so alarming to me. And, and were you surprised, Audrey, by the reaction in the city from some of the city officials who were asked to weigh in on what they thought about the raid? Oh, yeah. You tweeted at me. What was it? 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> and, I, and I just about uh, I, I, I you couldn't hear me screaming from your house. But the fact that Supervisor Fewer, who I think, you know, she she's married to a former uh, police officer. So she, she has a point of view, I understand. But the fact that she would say, well, this guy was selling that information. So that's not journalism. I mean, I'm sorry, but if selling things for a profit is not journalism, then guess what? We we are in trouble here because that's exactly what we do every single day. Um, you know, I know some uh, all uh, with the exception, I think, of two supervisors, Hillary Ronan and Aaron Peskin, at least those are the ones that I know of. All of them have said, well, this guy wasn't a journalist, as, a, as if one, their opinion of who's a journalist or not matters. And I care because I do not. And second of all, that's not the issue. He he was a freelancer. He was issued a press pass. He was definitely a journalist. So. He's not a journalist I would hire, but, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, as you know, there are a lot of people in the Bay Area who are journalists that we wouldn't necessarily hire. It doesn't mean if you don't like what they did or what a media outlet did with an information, that doesn't mean you have the right to smash their right to gather it. Yeah, and again, it was it it seems shocking that in a city 
that's as progressive as San Francisco, the thought of whether this it could be a big problem for um, journalism and for the shield law in California and our ability to cover the news just didn't seem to be of utmost uh, concern to a lot of people. I, I, would, I would go further. They didn't seem to even be interested in the intellectual debate behind it. And so, you know, one of the points I've made repeatedly to people is, you know, we have this idea and, and the people who wrote me emails would say this too, like, oh, well, Trump has belittled the press. This is not Trump. None of the people on the board of supervisors, the mayor, the public defender's office, not, none of these people are Trump supporters. Um, they would run away from you screaming in horror if you accused them of that. They are the other end of the political spectrum. They are very upset that Jeff Adachi died. They're very upset that somebody in the police department uh, leaked information about that. And they're using the ends to justify the means, which is a scary and frightening thing that government is want to do, regardless of political ideology, that we have to in the press continually fight against. Yeah, and I just want to, just to underscore it, I mean, you mentioned knocking down the door of uh, Brian Carmody in this case, but what you're, what you're also talking about is getting into our phones, getting into our computers, really getting into our, our conversations and, and into our files. And if that happened... Um, you know, for one, it would be an immediately, you know, we we could breach confidentiality with people. It would make it very difficult to, to, to report a story. But then if you follow that through, it then means that the public doesn't get any number, a myriad of stories because we're, we now cannot uh, do our jobs the way we'd like to. There's There's no government or police scandal or misstep that I can think of that would have been uncovered if it were not for this fundamental right. I mean, may, maybe there is one. It's not coming to mind, but I, I don't. I don't think I can overstate that enough. This government, our government, local, state, federal, all of it would be corrupt. It would be abusive. It would be authoritarian. It would be all of these things. And and this is not me being dramatic. That is a statement of fact. Yeah, and I. I, I... I think, too, we don't want to give the impression that we're in any way perfect. I, I, I think we do want people I'm to know. I'm perfect. <laughs> no, you are, I'm too. Not. No. But you're, you're right. I mean, we're we, all humans. We do want to hear from people, you know, about the thoughts about the coverage or how we handled something. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Uh, as part of this transparency project, we want to know what questions everybody else has. So if anybody is out there listening and you have a question about how we do our jobs or how we would handle a certain situation, uh, please email me. It's acooper at sfchronicle.com or you can tweet at me at at Audrey Cooper SF. I hope we didn't uh, bore people with the uh, in interior part of our jobs. I hope um, I hope there's some interest in it. Uh, we appreciate it. It's it's good for the future journalists of America, if nothing else. <laughs> if there are any. Uh, well, thank you so much, Audrey. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Evan and Audrey for being here. Thanks to Libby Coleman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.